So, um, mom, mm-hmm. um, first thing I want to do is I want to sort of like um get a sense of like what we mean at what we're thinking about like in our life and like our minds when we think about the word apocalypse. The first things that come to my mind are barren landscapes, blown out buildings, people walking long distances. Also, kind of like the nuclear apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And hello, beloved survivors. I'm Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about surviving apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. The other voice you're hearing is my eldest child, Finn. We've been recording a lot of conversations about apocalypse preparedness. And because we just moved from a five-acre plot of land in the woods to an apartment in the city, we are thinking and talking a lot about home and making home. I know I've been actually watching a lot of zombie movies lately. And one of the things I notice in TV and movies about Apocalypse is that oftentimes... The way we imagine an apocalypse happening, there's some kind of... Government issues? There's government issues, for sure. There's some kind of new disease or monster that people don't know how to fight. A.K.A. Godzilla mode. Godzilla mode, zombies, or some sort of virus. Um, And... There's also like an element of people being, having to forge alliances with whoever they happen to be with, not necessarily the people that they would have chosen to be with. The ongoing crisis of the coronavirus pandemic reminds us that when disasters unfold, many of the most tragic aspects are due to existing systems and their oppressive impacts. This moment, where people across the world are desperately trying to stave off the worst outcomes of COVID-19, the pressure we are experiencing arises in large part from the lack of infrastructure and supports that would make it possible for people to social distance safely, including and especially guaranteed housing. In this episode, we turn our attention on the issue of housing specifically, naming how people make a home when they can't afford to rent or buy, or when the conditions of the world require that we find safe harbor, regardless of whether we can pay. In recent months, we've seen an increase in the efforts of houseless people to convert abandoned or vacant homes into free or affordable housing, an activity popularly referred to as squatting. Late last year, a group of houseless mothers in Oakland under the coalition Moms for Housing, took over a vacant, corporate-owned property. After they were evicted, they successfully secured backing from the governor to require that the Bay Area property be sold to a community land trust. In March, families in Los Angeles occupied at least 12 vacant homes under the banner Reclaiming Our Homes. Today, we bring you a special conversation with my comrade Vicki Law, who was active in the squatters' rights struggle in New York City in the 1990s. Vicki Law is an author and journalist focused on mass incarceration. She is the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, 
co-author of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reform, and author of the forthcoming Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration. Vicki began squatting in the 1990s, and in the early 2000s, she helped her building convert from an illegal squat to a limited-income co-op. She currently lives with her daughter in the same apartment in their now-legalized building. Now, before we jump in, I want to offer some context for the conversation you are about to hear. The squatters' rights movement in New York City arose in the 70s and 80s. It was a time when real estate in many parts of New York City was much cheaper than it is now, obviously. And when landlords realized that they could get more money for their real estate if they torched the buildings and collected insurance. So a lot of landlords set fire to their buildings Um, Some would also just abandon them. And the city of New York would seize those buildings for non-payment of taxes, but often they would just remain empty. So in the 80s, a lot of folks started looking at these empty buildings as a solution for affordable housing. Now, of course, at the time, just the same as it is now, the lines to get into state-subsidized affordable housing were years long. So there were houseless people in New York City who just decided, hey, Let's break into these abandoned buildings and rebuild them from the inside. And because of this enormous wave of abandonment in the 70s, the city was really slow to act. As you'll hear in Vicky's story, the squatters' rights movement that happened in the 80s and 90s in New York was not always a cohesive movement. Often on the same street, you had squats that were filled with people who were really just getting by and squats that were filled with people who were acting from a shared political ideology that housing was a human right and that property is theft. Regardless of their political leanings, these folks had to learn a lot of skills. They learned how to replace the joists that hold up a floor and how to lay new floors. They learned to build staircases, to run electricity and water into buildings, to build walls, to build ceilings, and so much more. Vicki tells the story of how the building she moved into as a squat called Serenity became her permanent home. And she shares the lessons she learned from this experience that could be applicable to our time, to this pandemic moment. Let's take a listen. I started squatting in the East Village, Lower East Side in 1996. So this was a time in which gentrification had not hit anything east of Avenue A. Um, So uh, the neighborhood I squat in used to be known as Alphabet City in the 1970s and 80s. And there were avenues A, B, C, D, and then the East River. And the common refrain among people who were concerned about safety was you never go east of Avenue A. So I moved into a building that had been squatted in the late 1980s. Uh, My building had electricity which was good. A lot of building, and we had legal electricity. Some buildings had electricity that was not legal, meaning that somebody would actually go into the manhole and like connect uh, the building to existing electricity. I'm not an electrician. I don't really know how this works. But uh, wow. And then every once in a while, Con Edison would come and clip that, you know, clip the wires. And they always did this during the coldest part of the winter. So people who are relying on space heaters would then be really cold. Also, you just feel 
colder when there is just no light ever in your house. Right. I don't know why right. that is, but the psychology of, of winter is that sense. if you are, if it is dark, you are cold. Um, <laughs> so, so there were buildings that didn't have electricity. There were some buildings that didn't have water, you know, uh, and it was a major. And when you say, when you say that you all had legal electricity, did that mean that not only was it hooked up by Con Edison, but you also were paying for it. Paying yes. for it? We were also mm-hmm. paying for the electricity uh, with varying degrees of success because it was one big collective pool. So what do you mm-hmm. do when like, say, if you're in a building of 20 people, you know, 15 people consistently pay, but then five people consistently don't. You know, like, then that means that the other 15 people keep having to put in more to make sure that the Con Ed bill stays on. And sometimes our Con Ed got shut off because we could not make that amount. Hence, again, it really sucks to be dark and cold in the winter. Um, so, but I, we also had water uh, in our building, which was put in before my time. So I think I lucked out in that I moved into a building that was relatively finished. Uh, mm-hmm. and the following year in 1997, somebody who lived, uh, in another apartment in the same building was planning to, you know, move in with his girlfriend and wanted to have somebody stay in his place. Um, in the squatted buildings, it was a no, no to just leave your apartment empty. Like say you mm-hmm. wanted to go away for three months, go visit family, go traveling, go hop a train and, you know go to California or something, go pick blueberries in Maine. You had to put somebody in your place, in your space. Uh, It was really frowned upon to do what we called warehousing, which was to have an empty space. Like if your space was empty, it meant that you didn't need it and therefore it should go to somebody else. Um, Right. You know, which is kind of along the lines of like, this building was empty. Somebody should live in it. And, you know, like right. on the, the micro level, it's like your your apartment has been empty for three weeks. Do you not need this apartment? Because if so, there's lots of other people who need a place to live that should be able to live in that apartment. Um, so it's so interesting because it's like, it's such a, like, yeah, it's like the whole different culture and ideology about use of space. You know, whereas I think like for people who privately own their space, they take it as like, an assumed part of their reality that they should be able to leave that space at any time for however long with the assumption that no one would ever enter it. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And and that they can do what they want with that space. Uh, Whereas, or in, you know, the squatter community, people were saying, you know, like if you leave this for three months and there's nobody in there, it kind of means that you don't actually really need it. So fast forward to 1999, 2000 and several squats had been evicted since then. The neighborhood was becoming more gentrified. It was not fully like full-on gentrification like it is now, but it was becoming more gentrified. And people in the squatted buildings knew that like our time was running out. Uh, so in the 1980s, before my time, there used to be a program called the Tenant Interim Lease Program run by the city of New York in which tenants who lived in buildings that landlords had abandoned. So if you were a tenant in a building and your landlord just like wasn't taking care of anything, you know, like you were doing all the repairs yourself, um, they were totally absent, could apply to, uh, could apply to the city program called the till program in which you fixed up your building and the city awarded it to you and you got your building. Uh, and it was a way to reward people who, you know, 
stuck it out and were able to like build homes uh, in these buildings that had been abandoned by landlords. So they weren't squatting the building. Like there were people with leases, right. they were you like know, and missing tenants who had been abandoned by their landlords. Yes. Gotcha. But mm-hmm. the city, for some reason, I don't know why, somebody else can probably tell you this or some listeners can probably look this up, stopped the program. So ne- come 1999, 2000, some squatters um, call one of these nonprofit developers and say, hey, how, how would we get into this tenant interim lease program? Because what I should add is the city of New York had a policy of not talking to squatters. They did not negotiate with squatters. They did not have discussions or conversations about you know, whether or not people could stay or not stay. Their policy was, if we know that you're squatting and we're acknowledging this, it is because we are evicting you. Not that we're going to try to sit down at a negotiation table and say, well, if you, you know, if you agree to X, we'll give you Y. They said, nope, our policy is. You can't be seen as like in any way Mm -hmm. endorsing or acknowledging the right to be there. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the, The city of New York and many media at the time often framed squatters as they're cutting the line for affordable housing. They should just stand in this decade long line with everybody else. And there was never any acknowledgement of the fact that uh, squatters took over buildings that nobody else wanted. Squatters put a ton of work into their buildings to make them habitable. Again, like I am, I am sitting, you know, on a floor that has been rebuilt by people who squatted, not by, you know, it's not the original floor that the landlord abandoned that fell down. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, <laughs> yeah. so this. So the city of New York did not negotiate with squatters. That's why some squatters reached out to a nonprofit developer, hoping that they would be the ones to negotiate the buildings getting into the tenant interim lease program. What they were told was, sorry, you know, the tenant interim lease program has been discontinued for, you know, 20 years. There's no way you can get into it. Uh, And they said, but let's see if we can negotiate with the city to let them to have them award us the buildings to make them into low-income housing. And the wink-wink, nudge-nudge, or housing for low-income people, and the wink-wink, nudge-nudge of this conversation was going to be neither side was going to acknowledge that there were squatters already there and that these squatters would be the people who were going to then occupy these low-income apartments forever and ever. Hmm. Uh, So the city agreed to this. So there were meetings. So, you know, to kind of speed up the timeline, we had meetings in every building, people voiced their, their uh, apprehensions. I mean, some people were very worried about like, if we had to take out a bank loan with the bank, then foreclose on our building, especially those of right. us who knew that collective uh, payment of bills was not always feasible. Um, mm-hmm. Some people, I'm sad to say, uh, wanted to hold out because one of the stipulations would be that this was going to be what they called affordable housing in perpetuity or, um, oh, what is the term called? Uh, a house, in New York, we have something called a Housing Development Funds Corporation, HDFC, uh, which means that you cannot sell your apartment for whatever the market will bear. Um, you can only sell your apartment for a certain amount of money and you can only sell to people who make under a certain amount of money. So I can't sell my apartment for a bazillion dollars to Jeff Bezos because, right. you know, there's an income cap. So Jeff Bezos makes way over the income cap. I can't, you know, I can't even sell it to a corporate lawyer. 
you know, who makes less mm-hmm, than Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. but more than say somebody who's, you know, making the average amount of money would make. Um, and I definitely can't sell it for as much as the market will bear. So uh, some people I'm sad to say did not like this. And these were people because who they wanted to be able to have the option to, to make a profit off of the to make as much building. money as they possibly could and then skedaddle. Um, uh, yeah. So, so I'm sad to say that, you know, in movements, sometimes when you dangle a dollar in front of people, you know, like they, they, they get very, mm-hmm. very excited and all of these, uh, ideals and things that we had like long fought for and chanted and like, you know, like protested outside of various developers and housing places and the city all kind of went out the window and housing as a human right suddenly became, I should have the right to make money off my apartment. Um, Yes. So that I can imagine that that felt that was like, yeah, a really painful moment in the organizing process. It was, especially because these were people again whom you come up with and you build community with and you've protested and you've like fought the police and protested evictions and you know like barricaded yourself with and sat in oh my god so many meetings with you know about like, <laughs> about legal strategies and eviction defense and everything else and court watch and court defense and legal support and all these things and then you're like wait did those 10 years of us all being in these things mean nothing to you what you know like mm. so so that was disheartening but for the most part the building signed on um but then when this deal with the city was on the horizon, guess who suddenly became squatters? Yes. And then later on, they, they took a buyout from a developer to all uh, to, to allow him or her or corporation, whatever, whatever the developer was that was building a giant glass monstrosity, they took this buyout to, uh, so that the developer could like incorporate their building into this giant glass monstrosity that they were uh, that they were building. So again, like wow. I said, it wasn't one cohesive movement where everybody was under the banner of like housing is a human right, property is theft, because from the get go, there were some people who perhaps just wanted to like, you know, kick back, drink, do drugs and just live, you know, which is fine. Okay. And then there were some people who apparently were homesteaders, not squatters. Uh <laughs> You know, who would very I mean, and also, like, homesteaders is such a fucking, like, colonizer term to use. It's just like, wow. Yes. (laughs) And so, and then there were the rest of us who, you know, were like, oh, you mean that I can actually put kitchen cabinets in? Or I might actually build a bathroom and not worry that my house is going to be evicted next week and the hundreds of dollars I just paid to, like, put in a toilet and a sink in my in my house would just go down the drain like I could actually make improvements to my living situation and not worry Mm. about this uh about you know the cops kicking down my door and just throwing me out on the street you know uh that's that's fantastic and so at least for me it was uh and I think for many people it was a sense of permanence uh like Mm -hmm. you know this is what we've long fought for we fought for housing we fought for a place to live and when we were squatting, there's always the sense of this could go away. At any moment. Or maybe not this could go away because that seems very passive. This could be taken away from us very violently without notice. Like uh, 
1997, there was a squad on Fifth Street uh, that caught on fire in February. It was a really nice day in February. Uh, it was a sunny day. Everybody went outside. Everybody wanted to enjoy the nice day. And somebody accidentally left their space heater on. And mm. that space heater, there was an electrical fire. Something happened. Anyhow, there was a fire. Uh, people couldn't get into the guy's apartment because he had just put in this really nice fireproof steel door, which would have been oh, great no. that his ceiling didn't have any sheetrock. So, of course, when the fire started, it just like, you know, the flames just went up to the next floor and the next floor and the next floor. Uh, so there was not a way to like easily put out the fire. People called the fire department. The fire department came. They put out the fire, but then they also came with the police who vacated the building. They were like, nope, nope, wow. nobody can come in. And then they set up a watch on the building and everybody who had gone out to enjoy the nice day came back to find out that they were homeless and all their stuff and their pets were in there and they were not allowed to go in and get them. So this oh, was no. a kind of uh, temporality that we lived with is that, you know, like mm -hmm. this could happen to you. You could go out to enjoy the first nice day of the year and then something dumb like that could happen. So it's not like you got an eviction notice and you said, I got 30 days to get my things in order. It's like I went out and I came back and my two dogs are in there and you won't let me get my dogs. Like one guy got arrested mm. trying to climb the fire escape to get his dogs out of the uh, oh. out of his apartment because he was like, they're, you know, so heartless. Ooh. Yeah. Like at the very least, can you let me get my dogs out of there? And they were like, no, no. Uh, so. So this was a kind of like sense of you might not always have this. So this idea of right. legalizing the building and the buildings would become ours. Like we would become uh, HDFC shareholders in which everybody owns a part of the building. Nobody can sell for, you know, more than X amount of money. You can't sell for market rate. You can't sell to rich people. Um, and it would be a source of you know, like housing instability for people. And that is what I think a lot of us wanted. Also keep in mind at this point, like some of us were getting older. Um, and I mean, by older, sometimes it would be like people in their forties. I think I was like the ripe old age of like 23, you know, mm -hmm. at the time, but I was right. also, you know, newly pregnant. So this idea that like, oh, I don't have to worry about taking my baby out and then like coming back and finding out that I'm homeless. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, much better than yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, much better than being uh, th th than being in this constant like state of panic that I've got to like take everything out with the diaper bag, take all the important papers, take in, you know, take all my clothes, yeah. take everything else. Um, so we ended up doing this, uh, going through this process, and it was a long process. We had to get the buildings up to code. We had to, um. We had to go over things like in terms of like architecture and engineers and everything else to say like, you know, like what, what ha needs to happen in these buildings to get them up to code. Like they could no longer mm -hmm. be like sort of like squatter, uh, squatter aesthetics and squatter, you know, engineering, like we right. actually had to have right. things that were like, if a city inspector came, you know, or a department of buildings inspector came, they would be like, yes, this is actually the way that you like run your plumbing from like the basement all the way up to the top floor. This is the way your roof should look. It should, you know, like, so, so it was a really long process and there were like lots of hiccups and fits and starts. But at the end of it, I think that 
nine or ten buildings became uh, became HDFC became legalized and became a uh, wow. housing development fund corporations or co-ops. Um, but again, this was like out of the like, however, like you know, like however many tens of buildings had originally been squatted in the 1980s. Wow. That is just such an incredible story, Vicky. It's just like, and I mean, both the, the, I just so appreciate all of the history and context that you just offered in addition to like such specific clear examples of what it actually looked and felt mm-hmm. like to go through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and just thinking about you too as a, like newly pregnant and a mom or becoming a mom and being a part of this inflection moment mm-hmm. where it was possible for these buildings to become co-ops yes. um, is just, it's such a momentous story and I hope you have a memoir coming. So <laughs> well, I also um, want to add that yeah, yeah, yeah. even though like these buildings were in the kinds of conditions where you would think that only people who were like, uh, physically able would live in them people of all types of abilities and you know ages lived in them so you had people who were raising children in the squats as well like in when I moved into this building there were four uh single parents all with kids the same age no there were five four of them had little girls all the same age they were like age four or something when I moved in and then there was one woman who was a single mom that had a uh 11 year old I think um I think he was 11 so he was older than like the little pack of little girls that we also had so it was also a way for people to be able to like raise to raise families uh and also be able to pursue whatever they wanted to do so I think two of the single dads were musicians uh, one woman was an aspiring filmmaker. So there were different ways in which people could then say, like, I'm going to continue doing the things that I find meaningful. And I'm also able to raise my child and not have to work a bazillion hours in order to afford rent. And then there was a sense of community, too. Like, you know, like if you move into a building where there are a whole bunch of kids, your kids age, then they can all hang out and play together. Um, you know, like you can also like swap out on babysitting or you can ask other people to watch your kid. Like I ended up watching, I think almost all of the little girls at some point or another, because I was in college and I said, well, I need a place to study anyway. I'm staying home. I'm not going out to the show or the party or whatever. If you want to go for a few hours, all you got to do is, you know, have your kid be ready to go to sleep and I can just sit here and read. It's fine. You know, like there's a, what you're describing is like, you know, it, it's in some ways it sort of sounds like the best of the the best of all possible worlds mm-hmm. because it's like people who are parents, people who are non-parents, people who are in a shared commitment to like help each other yes. raise children, um, where like some of the issues that as a parent you're going to have to navigate mm-hmm. can be centered in a situation like that. Yeah, I mean also. You know, people figured things out. After the break, more of my conversation with Vicky. But first, some listener audio. We asked you to record your strategies for intimacy and connection to other humans during this time of social distancing. The voice you're about to hear is one of our listeners named Patrick. Hello, my name is Patrick. 
I'm a substitute teacher um, for elementary school and a Zoom instructor. And um, during this time, social distancing, I'm really focused on my garden, um, planting lots of seeds. Um, it's springtime, so it's the perfect time to do that, even if it's not a good time for anything else. Um, I'm also planting some trees and um, cultivating cuttings of raspberries and um, working on spreading spreading as much food as possible um, onto what, what space I have available. Um, so that when this period of time of social distancing ends, I'll have lots of fresh food to share um, in the summer when we, we all reconnect as, you know, as human people in the world. Um, thank you for your podcast. Um, stay strong. Have a nice day. Thank you, Patrick, for sharing your story. Listeners, we love hearing from you. So keep your memos coming. Again, what are your strategies for intimacy and connection to other humans during this time of social distancing? Let us know by recording audio into the Voice Memo app on your phone or wherever you have a Voice Memo app, and then emailing it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Vicki. Well, so in, in thinking in terms of like zooming out on that, um, notion of like finding a way together, you know, as I was sharing with you at the top of the show, um, you know, in this series in particular, because we wanted to talk about like the hard skills of survivor survival under either like disaster or just conditions of mm-hmm. collapse. Um, like it doesn't have to be like a acute disaster mm-hmm. or acute, you know, crisis like we're experiencing right now with this pandemic it could also just be like we're living under conditions of collapse like infrastructure collapse um and of course the question of shelter is particularly mm-hmm. relevant to that and it's relevant to this moment right mm-hmm. and the recognition that so many of us um either are currently already having to or will have to learn the skill of making shelter inside of Mm -hmm. spaces that were privately owned, Mm -hmm. you know, under the previous regime Mm -hmm. (laughs) or are privately owned currently. I'm just, I'm thinking, I'm wondering if like zooming out, you can, you know, harvest some gems in terms of like the lessons you learned about making home, making community through this experience of, squatting and organizing Hmm. I mean I think my experience is very different than what people might experience today I mean in Oakland at the beginning of the year or late last year there were a group of moms who uh, took over a house that was owned either by a bank or an absentee landlord. And I forget the details now, but they took it over. They were building housing, you know, kind of like the Lower East Side squats. They were building housing for themselves and their children and their families. And then uh, the state took notice and swooped in and tried and evicted them. Um, so that was, uh, you know, so I think that mm. one of the things we have to keep in mind is that real estate is a lot more valuable now. Like in the 1980s, it was like easier to like have people turn a blind eye to to um to that. But at the same time, there are also places and where property is cheaper and real estate is cheaper. I was in Bloomington, Indiana, last year, two years ago, um, mm-hmm. and I visited several projects where people had pulled together money to say buy a house. 
um, and it was one thousand dollars, one zero zero zero, to buy what? a house. This house needed a lot of work. Like I went in, and like it was very much like you know, like you know, I mean, it was very much like opening the door of serenity and all the floors falling down on you. You know, like uh, <laughs> by the time I visited, like there was a floor, but like they had to put in the floor because they were like, but they so. I think one of the things to think about is like what is available now, you know, and then also where you want to stay. I mean, obviously squatting in New York city is going to be a lot harder than everybody pulling their resources and buying a $1,000 house, you know, and building it in Bloomington, Indiana. But mm-hmm. if you don't want to live in Bloomington, Indiana, what good is that? Um, right. Type of thing. But I think one of the things is to like think about what the options and the resources are around you what do you need um i don't know if i could live in a place like bloomington indiana which is a largely white uh community it's like a very small town you know like i i think that there are things about new york city as somebody who is new york city born and bred that i really you know that i would really miss and it would make the fact that i live in a cheap place you know not as exciting or not as uh, right right you know fulfilling to me um but i think it's you know like figuring out what the options are and then how to go about getting them. So as we saw in Oakland, uh, the moms who had been squatting, you know, and building homes for themselves and their children got evicted. Um, And so it might be looking at people who've done these things more recently and saying like, what needs to happen for this to be successful? You know, like what, you know, like what were the, and you know, not to, I am not saying that they did things wrong or they should have done things differently. I am not, I don't live in Oakland. I don't know the political and real estate landscape of Oakland, but you know, like Mm -hmm. kind of looking at that and saying like, you know, like what happened in their scenario and how can we, if we try to do this in our location, avoid some of these things. And it means having a conversation with other folks too. I mean, until the internet and the airwaves get shut down, you know, like people are fairly reachable. So it might say like, hey, we noticed you did this. Would you be willing to have a conversation, you know, about, you know, what you did, how you did it, and looking back, what you might have done differently? Because right. that, like, you know, like the lesson. Yes, like the hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because, I mean, part of what you were just describing in, in the squatters' rights movement is like that one of the issues that you all were up against was that there that there were some ways in which like uh, people were coalescing around certain political ideas, mm-hmm. right? Like property is theft. Mm-hmm. And, and there were also people engaged in the process who were there literally just because they um, needed housing, not because there was necessarily like any political ideology motivating mm-hmm. the way they were, yeah. you know, going mm-hmm. about that. And I think that that's like, it's one of the questions that comes up often for us when we're when we're thinking about some of the the concepts that like underpin this show, right? That like um that you know, there's the ideal condition that we all imagine ourselves under mm-hmm. when shit hits the fan, right? Mm-hmm. And like who we're going to be with and what our outfit's going to look like and how mm-hmm. we're going to be so like politically evolved and mm-hmm. and and 
how we're going to have all of the skills in place that we already need by the Mm -hmm. time we're trying to survive. Right. And then there's the actual reality, which is that when shit hits the fan, you are with who you're with Mm -hmm. and you are who you are in that moment. And in many ways, like, you know, there's, there's whatever skills we all have, Mm -hmm. like whatever hard skills we have. And then there's the actual skills of relationship, which in my mind are the more important ones. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you know, as you were just describing, like you can learn how to build a staircase, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't have to know that going in, but it would help to know how to be in right relationship with mm-hmm. other people if you're going to build a staircase with them, yeah. right? Well, and so there's those there's those pieces of it, but then there is this. To me, there is this question of like how nec- how critical is it to have like a shared political lens or shared political ideology in order to do this kind of work of like making home, making shelter and the level of risk involved in doing that work. I think looking back, I think it is important because you want people to, you want to know that people have your back when shit hits the fan. Um, You don't want to think that you're going to all barricade yourselves in the building and wage all out war in defense of your home only to find that, three quarters of your building have left. Uh, This is not ideal. Um, (laughs) You you want to be sure that you're in a building. I mean, when I came in, my building and many other buildings had rules that you could smoke weed, but you could not do heroin. Like like that Mm -hmm. was actually just automatic grounds for eviction. Uh, And that was because people in previous buildings and I think maybe in this building had seen the ways in which heroin use had ravaged the community and the buildings um, from people who would uh, nod out and like knock over a candle and set the building on fire. And then the building would get evicted and then it would get torn down. And then everybody was homeless to things like, you know, like there would be people coming in and out of the building, trying to steal things. It made it unsafe for the other residents. So there was a hard and fast rule that, uh, that there was to be no heroin in the building. Um, Mm -hmm. and people would get, and people would just get tossed out, um, if they violated that. Um, so, so I think it's important and this is not to single out people who use heroin as like, you know, like somehow, you know, like you are not worthy of housing, but to say that like, sometimes people came, uh, came to these conclusions to say like, we can't have this because this is not good for the collective good. Like, you know, like if you want to live here, you know, you can smoke weed, that is fine. You know, you can like do acid, that is fine. This is, you know, uh, but you cannot Mm. do these things that will put the rest of our building in danger. Um, Mm. There were, you know, like, uh, you know, there were some buildings, I think actually our building did this once, you know, like, I don't think we had a hard and fast rule that you could not beat your wife. I think it was like this unspoken assumption but there was one mm-hmm. of the single moms, you know, was beaten very badly by her co-parent who did not live in our building. And he used to come and visit people in the building. You know, he was friends with people. And after that, we just banned him from the building. We we're like, you're done. You can't ever come in here ever, ever again. Um, but this right. was important for us to have this shared value that we all thought that domestic violence was wrong. So we didn't have somebody right. that was like, well, I think it's okay, you know, or right. or it's none of my business. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. So I think that it is important for people to have, even if you are not 100% aligned, which, you know, really almost nobody is, 
you know, but to have these shared understandings of like what isn't isn't acceptable. So if somebody says, I think people should be able to do whatever substances they want because it's their body and it doesn't matter versus people who might say, yes, but in a collective living situation, I need to know that this person has my back and is not like high as a fucking kite when the cops come and we need them to actually be present and engaged um or i need to make we need to make sure this person is not going to do things that endanger the rest of the building like uh fall asleep and knock over a candle and set the place on fire um right you know we need to make sure that this person is not going to be bringing in people who you know are going to like you know uh assault you know like the women who are living in the building we need to you know so there needs to be shared values around like what people want to see in their house um and it is always good to like have somebody who actually maybe knows what they're doing in terms of plumbing and electricity and everything else. Yeah, not bad idea at all, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I would also say like it is not always a comfortable living situation, but for people who are low income or live on the margins, you know, people are used to like not living in comfort. I mean, I think a large deterrent for many people to be involved in squatting is that they didn't want to live in rundown places where you had to build your own home, where you would be cold, where you had to put in your own walls, where, um, you know, if you didn't seal up all the holes, like you'd have like rats or mice, uh, where, you know, like you had to put in your own water or you had to. So, I mean, I remember there were some people who kept asking me about places in my building and whether or not there were any finished spaces available. So they wanted an apartment that was finished, you know, that had the walls, that had the water, that had the electricity, and be like, yes, we actually have a place open, but it has no water. Also, like, I don't actually know what the last person did to it, but, you know, like, also, like, half the floor is gone. Yeah, I mean, because what I'm hearing in that story, too, is that, like, you had become really accustomed to a certain level of discomfort because you had to in order to survive. Um, And then with time and effort and collective work, you know, some of that, you all were able to eventually transition the building itself. And so it, t- it took a lot of commitment and time and willingness to learn how to like do those things for yourselves. And I think that that, t- like when I look at some of the changes that are coming for our society, I, I, I think that that feels like a question to me, right? Like do people, we live in such relative, um, many of us in the U.S. live in such relative um, privileged and comfort. Mm-hmm. And I think about like how, um, yeah, just how access to things like things that people take for granted, people of a certain like class experience take for granted, like access to electricity and running mm-hmm. water and regular access to food of a variety of choices that they wish to have, mm-hmm. um, that those, that those things may change. And it, and the change doesn't necessarily have to mean like all out collapse if we're willing to shift gears mm-hmm. into like what work am I willing to put in and who am I willing to put that work in with in order to create the life that I want to have. Yes. Um, and I think about this too, like in terms of the physical transition that I just made, right? Because like I was living in on five acres of land in the woods in the country ass home mm-hmm. with wood fire heat. And like, mm-hmm. and had really adapted to a, a particular lifestyle that, you know, like one of the things that's been interesting this winter living in Minneapolis is like not having a fire that I'm tending mm-hmm. all day, every day. 
Um, like it's been quite an adjustment to be, and actually very much like a somatic like relief mm-hmm. to, to be like, I can just press a button and have heat and I don't have to go like <laughs> yes. build a fire or rebuild it or stoke it or tend it. Mm-hmm. But I also have now lost the rhythm of tending the fire mm-hmm. as a part of my daily life. And so it's like both a grief and a relief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, even with that loss, like even with the loss of my land, I'm so grateful in this moment, like in this moment where I think so many people because of social distancing, wish that they did have a five acre plot of land in the woods to go Mm -hmm. run away to. I'm actually so grateful to be in a city right now, Mm -hmm. to be in community with the people that I want to be in community with, because where I still out on my land, I, I, it's not that I wouldn't have community support, but it wouldn't be with the folks that I want to be in political Mm -hmm. community relationship with through this moment of crisis right yes because I was living in Trump territory Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you know um uh and so I just I'm thinking about that too that like that like there is as you were saying that like you want to if you're going to be in a situation where where um you're taking collective risk together Mm -hmm. you want to know that people will have your back Mm -hmm. and part of how you know that is through having a shared political framework. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not the end of the story, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that even inside our political movements, people betray each yes. other. Um, <laughs> like that shit happens. And at least there's some, you know, that I think the political framework offers a way for us to ground into what our practices mm-hmm. are and hopefully a way for us to hold each other accountable yes. too. Indeed. <laughs> Vicky, thank you so fucking much. Obviously, like, there's so many other questions. I, like, wish I had time to ask you about, like, your prison abolition work and all the work that you've done around, like, parenting and movements. So I guess we're just going to have to do, like, a part two at some point. Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. Upcoming episodes will look at medicine and healing, food and water on the run, digital security, growing food, rehabilitating the land, and more. In our next episode, we're going to feature my interview with Lauren Giambrone, a community herbalist and healer based in the Hudson Valley of New York, about plant medicine, first aid, and care where there is no doctor. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. There's no better time than now to support our podcast. Truly, the more our listeners give, the more of this critical content we can produce and get out to folks. We know it's a huge ask to give at this time when so many of us are feeling the financial strain of of what's happening in the economy right now. And we're so appreciative of all of the folks who've become new listeners, um, new supporters of the podcast, and those of you who have maintained your donations, even if you've had to reduce them. We see you, we love you, we thank you for that. And those of you who have become new sustainers, we love you, we see you, we appreciate you, thank you. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. Mm-hmm.